The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. You can follow along in your Bible if you don't have one. There are some under the seats around you, or you can look on the screen behind me. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So today, we get to finish our series on 1 Samuel, in spite of us, the story of God and his people in 1 Samuel. And I know you guys are really excited about that, or you're really bummed, or I'm sure you're like, man, I just wish this could go on more. I wish I could hear more and more, but this is it. This is, this is the end of 1 Samuel right here. We're in chapters 29, 30, and 31 right here. On this day, we're gonna, be, we're gonna wrap it up today. Next week, we're gonna have a standalone sermon, and then we'll be in our Christmas series or Advent series for the last uh, couple weeks of the year. And so uh, speaking of Christmas, I kind of apologize to you in advance this morning uh, because, uh, you know, we're in the Christmas seasons, the first Sunday of Advent, and we're talking about hope and, you know, you're supposed to have like kind of warm, fuzzy kind of feelings. And uh, 1 Samuel does not end like that. 1 Samuel is not like a a happily ever after kind of ending. In fact, uh, Megan was reading uh, the, the passage last night, just kind of looking ahead. And I'd encourage anybody to do that before we come in here on Sunday morning, if you know what text we're in. And she was looking ahead and she said like, gross. Like this is kind of, this is kind of yuck and gross here right at the end. And, and it is like that because, and part of that is because it's a, it's a two-part book. And so this was, doesn't really end the story of David. He keeps on going after this, but even then, 2 Samuel doesn't actually end 
on a particularly happy note either. It's the, the Bible, is, I keep telling you guys, it is, it is gritty and it is real. It is not a fairy book story. It is like, it is about real life. And, and in case you guys haven't figured out, like real life doesn't end like a sitcom. It's not just like happily ever after and we're all smiling at the end and the credits start rolling. Like life is, is really messy. But what we, what we do have in this passage, in these three chapters as we end 1 Samuel, is we have a very clear picture picture of victory and defeat. Really, this this book, we see this comparison that's being laid out. Ever since chapter 16, really, this comparison between Saul, the king that the people begged for. So around us, and they're powerful, and they're, we're being raided, and people are coming in, and they're taking our food that we're working really hard for. And we think if we have a king to protect us, a king to watch over us, like all the other nations have, then we'll be safe, and we'll be secure. And so they like almost demanded of God, God, give us a king like all the other nations have. And that's what they got in Saul, because Saul was from a wealthy family. He was big and strong. It says that he stood head and shoulders above all his peers. So he was like everything that you would picture for a king to be. He was big and strong and wealthy. He was powerful. He was like, yes, that's our king. But it was a king like all the other nations have. And that's exactly what they got. They got a king in Saul who served himself like all the other kings around him. He didn't have a heart after God. He had a heart to serve himself. And then this new guy comes upon the scene, this David guy who's the shepherd boy. He is the fifth or forgotten son of, of, of a not even a wealthy family under Jesse. In fact, when Samuel shows up, the prophet, to appoint the next king, uh, uh, Jesse brings his sons in, and he forgets to even bring in David. It's certainly not him. He's a shepherd boy. He's kind of an artist. He wears skinny jeans. He's out there writing poetry in the field, and you know the kind. He probably had a scarf, and, and, and this, that's not the kind of guy to lead our people. God says, yes, that's the guy I have for my to lead my people. He is a man after my own heart. So the majority of this book is laying down this comparison between Saul, the king like all the other nations had, and David, the king or the man after God's own heart. And that really draws to a really emphatic close right here at the close of this book. And what we see happening really at the same time is we see Saul face probably the greatest crisis of his life. And you, have, you see David face what probably is the greatest crisis, certainly so far, but probably the greatest crisis that he'll face his entire life. And uh, some theologians think that actually it happens at the very same time, that Saul, the day that he's facing his great crisis, which Jonathan covered last week, which is still kind of in play here, and the same day that David faces the great crisis of his life is on this exact same day. And we see this comparison of how Saul responds and of how David respond. And so the question is, as they both of these men face the great crisis of their life, here's the question that we're asking, is where did they go to find strength? The greatest crisis that David has faced and probably will face, where do they go to find strength? That's the question for us this morning. And the question for you and me this morning, as we're going to be looking at this, is as we apply it to our lives, is where do I go to find strength? Where do you go to find strength. And then the, the follow-up question is that, and 
if I know where I go to find, where I tend to go to find strength, then how can I train myself to go to the source of true strength so that I can experience life and victory instead of death and defeat? How can I train myself? How can I lead myself to find true strength from the only source of true strength so that I can have, live a, a life that leads to life and victory and not death and defeat? So the question is, where do you find strength? And we're just gonna see this morning three things. We're gonna see that here's where you go to find strength. We're gonna see that crisis reveals it. Where do you go to find strength? We're gonna see that your choices determine it. And then where do you go to find strength? We're gonna see that life and death hang on it. Crisis reveals it, your choices determine it, and life and death hang on it. First of all, where do you go to find strength? Crisis reveals it. So here's what's going on. Let's just kind of lay the, the, give the lay of the land so we kind of feel what's, what's happening at this time is uh, the Philistines have been the great enemy of Israel. And the Philistines are some bad mama jamas, man. They, they, have, uh, they have some really advanced weapons that a lot of the nations around them have. They were experts in, in working with iron. And so they had, they had some real technological advances that the Israelites just could not match in battle. They were powerful, uh, they were richer than the Israelites, they were, they, they were just a bane to their existence. And now, at this very moment, this very crisis moment, the Philistines decide, hey, we're gonna come in and we're gonna strike just a, just a big blow to the Israelites. We're gonna mass a giant army, we're gonna pull all our commanders and everybody together and we're gonna go after the Israelites and we're gonna fight them in battle, in a big, decisive battle. And Saul, he comes out and he looks at the army and he's like, I am not prepared for this. He starts to panic. Have you ever like had that kind of a feel like, like something happens, like you get a phone call or you check your bank account and, or, or you have a conversation with somebody and you realize like, hey, this stuff is, is way worse than I thought it was. And I don't know what in the world I'm gonna do. And you get that feeling of panic inside, like, 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 you know, your stomach starts doing crazy things and you think like, like, like breakfast is gonna come back up and you're just like, what in the world is gonna happen here? What am I gonna do? And Saul, who's the leader of his nation, he looks out over the enemy army and he's like, we have no answer to this. What do I do? And so Jonathan covered last week, Saul ends up, he ends up asking, he he tries to, I don't even know, it says that he consults dreams. I don't even know how you consult dreams. I guess he took a lot of naps and said, God, give me a dream. Tell me something through here. It says he consulted, uh, like rolling the dice, like, like tell me something here. There's nothing, no answer there. He consults prophets and there's no answer there. Like God is like, heaven is silent for him. And so he finally says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go find a medium, somebody that will bring up a spirit of a dead person, which, is, which was expressly and explicitly prohibited by God's law. He, God said, do not mess around with this. This is of the devil. This is demonic. Do not play around with this. And Saul, and one of the few good things that he did, he actually expelled all the mediums, all the witches out of Israel. So this is an undercover witch, an undercover medium that somebody actually leads him to. And 
One of the weirdest things in the Bible happens, he goes to this medium, and she doesn't know it's Saul, and Samuel, like somehow, we don't even know, like, how does that even work? Samuel comes up, and he speaks to Saul, and it freaks everybody out, and he says, like, you're going to die, and your whole household are going to die. So, like, even what he, like, he goes out of God's will to consult the future. Like, he, even the future that he hears there is not good, and then he leaves, and he is, he is, he is, death, he is, I can't imagine getting that kind of news. Like, he is, he is very bummed out. He is full of despair. And at this very same moment, as the, all that is going on with, 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 with Saul, David has been hanging out. He, he was running away from Saul, and he's finally found some safety with the Philistines. He convinces the Philistines he's on their side, and he lives with the Philistines, and he convinces them he's, he's working with them, and he's making raids, and he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of bending the truth with the king of the Philistines, and he's, the king says, hey, what did you guys do today? And he said, hey, we out, went out and raided this city that was over in this region, and they're like, he's like, oh, he, like, he's assuming, he doesn't tell him it's not Israelites that live there. The king assumes that Israelites live there. So the king thinks that the more it, David goes on these raids, the more David's on his side because nobody's going to want him back in Israel after he's been raiding them. David's kind of playing both sides of the coin here. And, and, and so finally, Achish says, hey, we're getting together all the commanders. We're going to go fight Israel. David, I want you to come with me, and I trust you with my life. I want you to be my bodyguard. I want you to be beside me the whole time. And then the rest of the commanders, the Philistines show up and they see David back there in the back and like, <laughs> no way, we're not having him behind us. Remember, he's the guy they wrote the song about. Remember that popular song like, you know, Saul killed his thousands, David killed his two thousands. I'm not turning my back on him. Like, no way, he is not going with us at all. There's no possible way this is happening. So Achish says, I'm sorry, David. Hey, uh, you, you gotta go home. And David's like, oh man, that is terrible. Like, God intervenes in this situation so David wouldn't nip neither have to go fight his countrymen nor betray the people who have been betraying, protecting him. So he and his men, they leave the next morning. That's chapter 29. And they go back to their town that the Philistines gave them, which is Ziklag. And let's look at the verse beginning of chapter 30 that Keetra read for us. Now, when David and the men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Now, now here's a key phrase that carried them off and went on their way. Now, David and his men would have known they didn't kill them there in the city because they found no bodies. They found no bodies. They come back. Can you imagine that feeling, though? Like, you've been off thinking you're going to go to war. God moves and intervenes. You're like, man, God's on our side. God's working for us. And you, you get home and you come around the corner and you, or even before that, you would see the smoke rising. And then you start to speed up. What's, what's happening? And then you finally make the last turn and you see like your greatest, like that's your greatest fear, isn't it? You ever like, Megan and the kids and I came home and the other night, and we were driving the neighborhood, and we could see lights ahead, and you come around the corner, and like, you know, like, that's not where my house is, but you still have this feeling like, what, what if, right? What if something happened? And, and I even had all my family in the car, like, what if something happened while I was gone? Can you, you know that feeling. And they come around the corner, and there's smoke rising, and the whole city has been pillaged and sacked and burned. 
Can you imagine that terrible minutes and hours between the time that they see that and they can finally get up to the city and make their way into the city and each man make his way to his own house and look and try to find his, fan, his family frantically searching for his wife and his children and his pets and they're nowhere to be found. The whole place is gone. It is empty. It's, it's your, all your possessions are burned and your family is gone. And it says... Next, when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Ah, despair. Sometimes you can read things, and it's just like you read it, right? But like, just try to just, even for a moment, equate yourself with what is happening here. These men that have been off with David, they get back and their everything is gone. And you know that they've been taken captive, but you don't know what state they're in. You don't know if they're safe. You don't know if, if they've turned around and killed them somewhere else or tortured them or imagine what you'd be thinking about your wives and your daughters They wept till they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever we- wept until you, you ran out of tears? You wept until you ran out of strength. It was just, it was just, you were conscious of your body, but you were just empty. David's wives had been taken. Verse 8, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now, that's not cool, but it's kind of easy to understand, isn't it? These men are just broken and bereft. They're like, they got to take it out on somebody. And David, we followed you out to this battle. We thought God was with you, and now we're back here, and God has seemingly just let some enemy come in and destroy our families and destroy everything we had. And it says they were going to stone him because the people were bitter, if you can understand it. So David, he's lost his families, he's lost his wives, he's lost his possessions, and now what men he has left, the 600 men that he's counted on for the past years, now they turn around and they say, we're gonna kill you. So at this very moment, David has no friend in the world. David has lost everything, and the few people he counted on literally have, have turned on him and want him dead. He literally has no one in the world on his side. What does he do? I think this is just one of the most powerful verses that we've covered in this entire book. David, in this moment of incredible bitterness and loss and loneliness, this, this, this word, but, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. 
Shall I pursue after this band? And shall I overtake him? David, at this moment of great crisis and loss, all of a sudden we see, what does he do? Where does he turn for strength? He says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When crisis comes, David's initial response, his natural response at this moment is to turn to the Lord for strength and not anywhere else. He doesn't fight back against his men. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to rally them. He doesn't turn to drink. He doesn't try to check out and go in his tent and just turn on Netflix and pretend this didn't happen. He doesn't like, try to, uh, to drug himself away so that he doesn't have to address it and think about it. David turns and he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Here's the truth. Crisis always reveals where you look to find your strength. Crisis always reveals where you turn, where you really look to find your strength. Whenever you, whenever you are bereft and exhausted and tired and lonely and no one's on your side and you, you're sick, you got that call, your marriage is falling apart, your kids don't like you, your dog runs away from you and you're left alone and what, how do you respond? Where do you turn for strength? Where do you turn for strength? That's how you know really what you're actually relying on. A lot of us, we, it's easy to rely upon God, air quotes, whenever things are going smoothly. Man, I love the Lord. You come in and, you know, the kids got to, you know, the kids got dressed this morning. There are no fights and you and your wife are, are, are good and you look at each other and there's stars in each other's eyes and, and it's one of those sweet moments and, man, you, you drive and it's not raining and you get no, no red lights on the way to church and you walk in and this, the music is just the ones that you like and Randy doesn't talk too long and, you know, we get to go eat afterwards. I don't have to do set up or tear down, so it's like in and out and so it's one of those awesome, smooth days. It it's awesome. It's easy to rely upon the Lord on those days. But what about when the chips are down and the stakes are high? Think about it. Where do you go? And the hotter the flames are, the more serious the crisis is, the more it will push out of you where your heart really is. Where does your heart really rely David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What does that mean? I, don't, I mean, like, maybe you're sitting there like, okay, I get you. Like, where do I go? Man, I go here. I go there. I tend to I, I drink a little bit more. I take a couple more pills. I try to check, check out. I, I try to blame people. I, I try to, like, really try to muster my troops and come up with a new, you know, plan A, B, C didn't work. Now we're on to, to D and E, and I, I'll work on my way through. But what does this actually mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Well, first of all, we know that means is that David found strength in the nature and character of God. Over times that we have seen all through this book, David has continually, through small crises and large crises, continually been taught by the Lord that he is faithful, that he is powerful, 
that he is just, that he is loving, that he has David's best interest at heart. David has continually been reminded by God that God is just and powerful and capable. And so now at this moment, whenever he sees the great crisis of his life and his heart is broken within him and he's wept till he has no more strength to weep, he reminds himself naturally of who God is, of his nature and his character. Some of us, we, we don't turn to the Lord in our times of crisis. It reveals that we aren't putting our strength in him because we don't really either know or really believe that he is who he says that he is. And we don't know that because we are more aware of what your, our sports team has done or what the royal family is doing or what is happening this week on whatever thing that we're following or whatever is happening on your neighbors and your friends that you're not even in contact with anymore on Facebook and Instagram and what whatnot. You know all the controversies that are floating around on social media, but you and I don't return to the nature and character of God because we have been more aware of everything else than him. And so then, because we're not relying upon him, we're not aware of him, we have those things. And, and even though as we grab them, don't we know that they fail us every time? When we check out, we turn to a substance, we turn to sex or relationships, or we try to uh, triangulate and blame other people around us. Don't we know that just leads to further and further disappointment? Doesn't it just get messier and messier the more that we do that? But that's all that we have to grab hold on because that's all that we're aware of. But David strengthened himself in the Lord because he knew the nature and character of his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David found strength. Not only is God powerful and just and wise, but God, that God was his God. He was his covenant child. David knew that not only if, David knew this, this idea of double ownership, and that meant if God owned David, that means that David owned God. If God owns you, that means that you own God when the chips are down. Not like it's like you own him and control him. It means that you own him as a son or daughter owns a parent and when, chip, when the chips are down. My son and daughter, they expect me to come to their aid when they're in trouble, and they should because I'm their dad. That's the way God is to his children. When the chips are down, you can expect him to come to your aid if you belong to him. And David knew that that God was his God. And then we see the next thing that, that, that David did in this midst of crisis. It says that in verse 8, that David inquired of the Lord. He asked God, what should I do now? He didn't just say, hey, here's what I want to do. Why don't you come and, and help me out with this guy? David didn't just run ahead and said, all right, hey, guys, I know this is bad, but I got a plan. Follow me. I, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to work this out. I promise you this is going to be okay. David strengthened himself in the Lord and reminded himself of the nature and character of God, that he belonged to him. And then he turned, before he went out to the people, he turned to the priest and he said, inquire of the Lord. Ask the Lord what I should do. Isn't that interesting? David was 
David was committing himself to respond to the Lord in whatever he said to do. If God said pursue them, he'd pursue them. If God said don't, he wouldn't. God, whatever you say, I will do. He inquired of God's representative in in the way that God had prescribed for him to do. By contrast, what did Saul do in his crisis? It told us back in chapter 38, it says that he feared he, was, he frantically searched for reassurance. He wasn't looking for God to tell him what God wanted to tell him. He was looking for somebody to reassure him that it was going to be okay, that his plan, that his way was going to be okay. And then that even resulted in him consulting an enemy of God. Where do you find strength? Crisis reveals it. But then secondly, your choices determine it. Here's what I mean by that. While a crisis may reveal where you're trying to find strength, it only reveals it. It does not, it doesn't form you. All years beforehand, Saul would never have dreamed of consulting a medium, an enemy of God for direction. He was a worshiper of God. In fact, he's the one who, outlawed them and made them leave the country. Saul would never have dreamed he would end up in a tent of a medium asking for direction. And haven't you and, maybe you haven't, but I know I have found myself at certain places in my life where I'm like, how did I even get here? I never would have dreamed I would have responded like this to my wife or to my kids. I never thought I would turn to this or I never thought my heart would be so hard towards God or towards my, the people who I, who I say I love around me. How do I even get here? And yet David, probably years before, as a poor shepherd, the forgotten fifth son of Jesse, he would never have dreamed, he would never have dreamed that he would face a crisis of losing his family and all his men losing their family and that he would respond by strengthening himself in the Lord instead of panicking like Saul did. What's the difference between Saul and David? Because Saul finds himself in a place he never would imagine. David finds himself in a place he would never imagine, but opposite sides of the pendulum, right? In fact, we, we see like, didn't Saul actually, if you go back to chapter 28, Saul actually asked God first. He didn't ask his priest, but he asked God to give a dream or speak through a prophet, and yet he resp- he, God did not respond to him, and yet God responded to David. What, what's going on here? This is a result of months and weeks and years of David and Saul both forging a path by their small, ordinary decisions Every day deciding where they're going to put, the, where they're going to look for strength. Where are they going to look for strength? The small daily decisions that David made that led him here and the small daily decisions that Saul made that led him here where he never would have imagined. We see Saul continually through this book making decisions of self-rule. God, I want you to bless what I do, but I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to do what I want to do, God. 
And David, we see him continually asking the Lord, bending his knee, bending his will to the Lord, saying, God, what do you have for me? What do you want me to do in little ways? And what happens in our life is it's the little decisions you and I make about where we turn for strength. Where do we turn for direction? How do you view your life? Do you view it as belonging to you or do you belong it, view it as belonging to the Lord? It's shown and we, we forge a path like water flowing down a hill that eventually forge, forges a, a burrow and then that becomes a ditch. Then it becomes a, a wide ravine. Like you and I, it's the small daily decisions that you and I make about where we're putting our trust, who we are living our life for that forge a path that then when the crisis hits and, the, and the, just the torrents pour down, that's the path that the water is gonna flow down that path that we have forged by our daily small decisions that we have made. God responds to David and doesn't respond to Saul because built into this idea of asking God, God, what do you want me to do is this concept that, that God is God and I am not. And I'm not asking you to bless what I do. I'm asking for you to tell me what you want me to do. Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him and what? He will make your path straight. He doesn't just make your path straight. He makes your path straight if in all your ways you acknowledge him. The promise of God for his people is that he will be a help in time of trouble. Just like my kids expect their dad to be a help in their time of trouble. But in built into that promise is this concept that we are submitting our will and our ways to him. God said to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him, serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. That's what we see happening with David and with Saul. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and you will find me. When? When you seek for me with all your heart. In Isaiah 55, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Saul was looking for God to just give him some sort of reassurance. And David was seeking for the Lord to be his Lord and God. To forsake his ways and return to the Lord. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. God has promised, <clears throat> the Lord has promised great strength for his people, for his children. There's great strength available. This strength that guides David in the middle of this despair to strengthen himself and lead his people to a great victory 
There's great strength promise for you and me as believers. But it's only promised us as we acknowledge him, as we bow our knee to him, and it happens in your daily life. Have you ever thought like, hey, man, I'd love to share my faith, but I'll do it, you know, if, if I ever go on a mission trip, I'll share my faith, and you hear some people say, like, if you don't share your faith here, you're not gonna, and here's the truth. Every single person in this room has either has, is now, or will face great crisis in our life. I don't know what it will be for you. It could be the loss of a job. It could be loss of health. It could be loss of a spouse. It could be loss of a child. Lord forbid. It could be any number of things. Every single one of us, though, will face great crisis in our life. And the only way that you will be prepared to draw strength from the Lord in those times of crisis is if you are drawing strength from the Lord in your small, ordinary decisions. Where do you find strength? Crisis reveals it. Our decisions, our daily small decisions, determine it. But lastly, life and death hang on it. So what we see happen in this part is David seeks the Lord, and God tells him, pursue them, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue. So David sets out with 600 men, and they go down, and they're, they're trying to follow the tracks, and they find that somebody that was left behind and from the, the, the raiding party, and that Egyptian helps them excuse me, helps them find this camp and they come to the camp and man, they're just, the, the Malachites are just celebrating all the, all the spoil that they have gotten. And David and his men rush in. They only have 400 at this point because they left 200 back at the brook. Only 400 people rush in and they utterly defeat the Amalekites. And not only do they rescue everything that was stolen and every person who was kidnapped, but then they have they come back with more than they ever had because they have all the abundance that the Amalekites had raided from other cities and towns and villages in the area. So all of a sudden they get everything back and then they are richer and better off than they ever have been before. The Lord tells him to go ahead. The Lord says he will give him victory. They bring it back. And, and this is what's, what stands out in this part of the passage that David attributes the victory. This victory came by the Lord. When they come back to the 200 men who were so exhausted at the, at the brook that they couldn't go any further, there's some of David's 400 men that went to the battle. And they said, we shouldn't share any of the spoils with these people who are left back here by, by this brook. They didn't. They, they left here. They were too tired. We went. We were tired too, but we went and we conquered them. They can give their wives and kids back and go away. We don't want them around us anymore. They're cowards. We're going to keep the spoil. And David says, no, they stay back here why would we, he basically saying, why would we insult God because it's God who gave the victory and not you and me? David knew that it was God who brought the victory. So the same time that David is achieving victory over the Amalekites, getting everything that was stolen back, and even more, Saul goes into his battle after years and years of seeking his own way, after years and years of being a king of his own life and either ignoring God or asking God to bless what he was doing and not submitting his way to the Lord, Saul goes into battle and 
fulfills the prophecy, or the prophecy is fulfilled, Saul and all his sons all die on the battlefield that day. David achieves victory that is unlikely, and Saul and his whole household are wiped out in one day. It's the payoff after years of deciding who they're going to depend on, where, is they're gonna, where are they going to draw their strength from. It's really sad. But here's the thing for David, even though they achieve victory today, it's not always going to be, he's not always going to be victorious. It's not going to be easy. In fact, David, if you were to look ahead, maybe you already know, David's going to mess up royally, like several times. Like one, like, like sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, gets that man killed, like that kind of mess up. It's not going to be easy for him. But even through those mess-ups, even through the hard times, David is going to be on the path to life while Saul was on the path to death, even though David will eventually die. What's the difference between these two? Where does it really lie? I think we see part of it here in this passage. Saul, whenever he consulted for help from God, when they kind of gave it a stab, it says he asked dreams and he asked like the, basically it's like the um, it's like the rolling of the dice. And he asked the prophets, but he didn't ask a priest. There are no priests with Saul. David kept a priest with him. Why? Because David knew that he needed, he knew he was sinful and he knew he needed atonement. That's what the priests did. The priests made a sacrifice to cover the sins of the faithful who were seeking to bow their knee to God, but yet doing so sinfully and absolutely imperfectly. David has sinned, is sinning, and will sin greatly, but he is on the path to life because he has the priest with him who is making atonement for him to cover his sin, to stand in between the perfect God and him. And that's what Jesus does for us, in spite of us. That's been a, the title of our series, In Spite of Us. That's not bad news. That's the good news. In spite of us, there's a priest to stand in between us and him. In spite of us, even though we are, will, are and have and will royally mess up, there is someone who is there between, who is taking on our sin and the rightful repayment for our sin and is instead giving us life and victory where we deserve death and defeat. There is someone who stands between us and our own mess ups and failures. And isn't that the good news? In spite of us, there's Jesus. As we begin this holiday season, that's what we're celebrating. It's not just that a baby came and angels sang and all that stuff is great. But he came in spite of us to save us. He came in spite of us to bring us life and victory where we deserve death and defeat. 
And that's where we can find great strength. Not in our perfection to always go to him and find strength in him, but in our frailties and in our failures to remember, man, even though I didn't, he did. And because I see that kind of love to me, poured out to me through Christ, then I can willingly and gladly bow my knee to him and say, whatever you want to do, and however you want to do it, have your way. I know that's the path of life. And we can say like Peter, another disciple, said when Jesus said, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? And they said, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.